At church, it is no surprise that we can boldly express our testimony to other people in the church, and we're not going to get judged for it. It's easy to do all of these things in an environment where everybody else is worshiping God, singing hymns, and praying. But how do we act when we are in a godless environment? A couple weeks back, we had the, the blessing of having our annual VBS, Vacation Bible School. And for me, VBS is always one of the highlights of my year. It's always a lot of work. It's very stressful. Almost every single year, you're always stressed. But it's always the most rewarding event because you get to interact with these children. You get to tease these children. And I just like joking around with the kids. It's always a memorable experience. And in this last VBS that we had, I had an interaction with a kid that was quite memorable to me. I remember that I was, it was about 15 minutes before VBS started. I was talking with Tadala, with Dennis. We were over here in the front of the platform. And I've been talking about this guy a lot, but I was speaking to them about a guy named Victor Wembanyama. Again, most of you do not know who this guy is, nor, do you, nor should you care, but he is this NBA rookie that is set to take the, the, the sport by storm, or as that's what they like to say. He was the number one pick in his draft class, meaning he was the first choice among every single other NBA player or uh, recruit. And he's touted to be the most promising player that has ever played the sport since LeBron James in 2003. Now, the reason why I'm talking about this guy so much with my friends is because the one the, the team that drafted this player was the team that I support, the San Antonio Spurs. And so as I was talking about this rookie, you know, hyping him up with the doll and Dennis, one of the kids from the older kids class overheard me, and our conversation went sort of like this. The kid says, hey, are you guys talking about Victor Wembanyama? A lot of guys at my school are Spurs fans now because of him. And I said, ah, I see. Well, I've been a Spurs supporter way before Wembenyama. To which the kid replied, that's what they all say. You're just a bandwagoner too. Tadala can testify. The moment I was called a bandwagoner, I took defensive stance. I told him, I have the jerseys of Robinson, I have the jerseys of Tim Duncan. I'm not a bandwagoner. This was the first time in my life that I've ever been called a bandwagoner. If you don't know the NBA... The Spurs are known as the, one of the most boring franchises to watch. They're not exciting. They're not fun. So to be a fan of the Spurs, you have to be kind of weird. And so I was taken aback by this label of a bandwagoner. And if you don't know what a bandwagoner is, it's basically someone who always cheers for whichever team is currently the best. It doesn't matter what the team is. They cheer for whoever's the best. Now, my dad is not going to say he's a bandwagoner. But I'm just going to say, when the 2010 Vancouver Canucks were the best, my dad bought all the gear. He was waving the flag in the Toyota Siena. He was every, had all the gear. The moment they lost the Stanley Cup, all of that gear was di disappeared. So I'm not saying my dad's a bandwagon, but... <laughs> okay, now personally, I don't find any problems with a bandwagoner, especially if they confess to being one. I have a problem when they, don't, they, they say they're actually a loyal fan, but they're actually not. These are people who only cheer for a team when the team is succeeding, when the team is at their highest in ability. 
And but that, the moment that team is no longer excellent, bandwagoners search for a new and better team, a greener pasture, you could say. They are the opposite of loyal. Now, in the matter of sports, Sadal always says this to me, what's the point of being a loyal fan? I mean, it's not going to get you any rewards. The San Antonio Spurs are not going to fly you out to Texas and give you all-time access to their games. And truthfully, there is no reward to being loyal to a team sport. Neither is there any reward in being loyal to a brand, because we often get loyal to brands, you know, PlayStation, Xbox, Nike, Adidas, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Starbucks, Tim Hortons, and we align with a certain uh, brand over its rivals. And does, does our brand loyalty get us any rewards? No. Our loyalty is barely rewarded, but that's just our nature, is to be loyal to one thing. So that's why bandwagoning, when it comes to brands, when it comes to sports teams, it's fine. I see no problem with it. But what isn't fine is what I like to term being a bandwagon believer. A bandwagon believer. To be loyal to God only when it's the popular thing to do. To be loyal to God only when your life is going extremely well. To be loyal to God only when you have nothing better to do. Don't you think God deserves our unwavering loyalty? We are so loyal to brands. Me, I'm so loyal to brands. That's just, I guess, my nature. All my life, I've never bought a single Xbox. Every single time has been PlayStation. All my life, whenever there's an option between Starbucks and Timmy's, I'd rather go to Timmy's. Cheaper coffee, it tastes better too. I don't know. I don't know about that part, but I like Tim Warren's. But I'm loyal to a brand, and I know it's not going to get me any, any rewards, but if we're that loyal to brands, to teams, don't you think that we should give that same level or even higher level of loyalty to God? Matter of fact, God wants His children to be faithful and loyal to Him. In 1 Corinthians 4.2 it says, Moreover, it is required in stewards. It doesn't say, moreover, it is recommended in stewards. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. It's not recommended for stewards to be faithful. It is required. God requires his stewards to be faithful to him. And this morning, I want to challenge us to be loyal and faithful to God. We can't think of God and our service to him as something temporary that we do to pass the time here on earth. But rather, Think of it as something that we are going to commit to for life, that will have eternal benefits on our part. But before we get into our three points, let's just open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would be with me as I preach your word, that the message that you've laid in my heart, please preserve my voice for today and for the rest of the week for team camp and the same for Pastor Tim. I pray, Lord, that you would use this message to, again, touch our hearts on this matter of faithfulness to you, that we would remain faithful to you despite what circumstances we may find ourselves in. And I pray that you would, again, speak to, uh, continually speak to my heart and speak to the hearts of the congregation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now let's go back to Joshua 24. If you've closed your Bible, go back to Joshua 24, 14 to 16, the scripture passage that we read. And today there are three common scenarios that and I find that people tend to start following God insincerely. So let's go to Joshua 24, 14 to 16. You don't have to reread it again, but I will. So just follow along as I go through the passage one more time. Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers 
served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. This is a very famous passage. Among many Christian homes, we put this, a portion of this verse on a plaque. We put it on our house, uh, to, to maybe in front of the door, on, uh, to welcome visitors. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This was part of Joshua's final speech before you know, passing away soon after, to stay faithful to God. He knew that the longer the Israelites lived in Canaan land, the more tempted they would be to start following the gods of the Amorites and the gods of all the other Canaanites. Everybody has an individual choice to make, just as Joshua surmised. Will you choose to serve the God, the God that delivered you from bondage, the God that led you through the wilderness? Will you choose to serve that God, or will you choose to serve the gods of the Amorites who have done nothing for you? You have a choice to make, Israelite. Choose to serve God, or choose to serve those gods that have not done anything for you and are false, false idols. But whatever choice you make, Israelite, Whatever choice you make, I know that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was Joshua's character. It didn't matter what the rest of the Israelites did. It's not going to influence his decision to follow the Lord. Whatever you guys choose to serve, whatever idol you choose to, to waste your life on, as for me and my house, we're going to choose to serve the Lord. It's kind of... Uncommon and weird to say it this way, but Joshua, because of his leadership, example, and influence, Joshua made it popular to follow God in Israel. He made it the common thing to do in his, during his, his leadership. It even says in Judges 2.7, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. That was the impact that Joshua had. He made it acceptable. He made it common, a common thing to do for the Israelites to, to have a close relationship with God. You could say it was the popular thing to do to, is to worship God at that time. But when Joshua and the generation that was leading with him passed away, a shift took place within the hearts of the Israelites. Judges 2.11 says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger, and they forsook the Lord, and served Baal and Asheroth. Within this new generation that did not have Joshua, didn't have the elders, within this younger generation, a new trend started to gain some steam. The young Israelites started to take notice of all of the different gods that were around them, of all the different false gods, as, as uh, Israelites had claimed. They started to notice that these gods were actually quite fun to worship. Maybe serving Baal and Ashereth, Serving Baal and Asherah is more fun than serving Jehovah God. We should just switch our worship and our, our, our subject of worship to Baal and Asherah. 
Maybe they noticed that they can serve Baal and Ashtaroth and do whatever their flesh wanted. It's a win-win situation. They can worship a deity and they can also please themselves. They couldn't do that with Jehovah God. They had to quiet down their flesh in order to have a good relationship with Jehovah. But with Baal and Ashtaroth, you don't have to do that. This trend started to pick up steam of the Israelites moving their focus from God and onto Baal and Ashtaroth. And it spread like wildfire. Everybody jumped on the bandwagon and started worshiping these two false idols. And as the verse we just read, the nation grew increasingly wicked to the point where they needed to be judged. To be, to be, uh, God had to send oppressors to judge and, and serve justice to the, the, the Israelites. You could say that it was no longer popular to serve and to be faithful to the God that has led them, that has provided for them, and that has guided them. It was no longer popular. What was popular was Baal and Asherah. Not a single person was willing to step out and be a Joshua and influence the people to, 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 to be faithful to the Lord God. No, everybody jumped ship and started worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth. They just followed whatever society dictated. We saw the same situation take place in King Solomon's life. Was King Solomon a good king in the beginning of his reign? Yes. That's the reason why God gave him unmatched wisdom. But when he started marrying foreign women, he started adopting the gods of those foreign women. He blindly jumped on the bandwagon of idolatry. 1 Kings 11, 4-8 describes Solomon's uh, uh, dissension from, from his former uh, glory, really. He was a very godly king in the beginning. For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Even worse, then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. Solomon fell for the same trap as well. You see, it's quite easy, you could agree, that it's quite easy to be faithful and loyal to God when everybody else around you is also faithful and loyal to God. When everybody is around you is a God-fearing Christian, it's easy for us to express our faith. It's no surprise that at church, we can boldly pray, knowing that no one's going to judge us for getting on our knees and praying. We can boldly sing the hymns of the faith, sing out loud, sing our lungs out, and no one's going to judge us. At church, it is no surprise that we can boldly express our testimony to other people in the church, and we're not going to get judged for it. It's easy to do all of these things in an environment where everybody else is worshiping God, singing hymns, and praying. But how do we act when we are in a godless environment? Godless is not to say that God is not present there, but God is not 
everybody, not, not everybody is a follower of God. What do you do when you are in a godless environment? In such an environment, will you still be able to boldly proclaim your faith? Will you still be able, the way you tell people here at church about what God did for your life, for how God has blessed you, will you still be able to do that when you're around your coworkers, around your classmates? Will you still be able to pray? Here we can pray unashamedly for, for minutes on end. But when you're about to pray for your food at your, your, your common lunch area, do you make sure that your prayer is a split second short? Well, Heavenly Father, thank you. And then boom, done. Food prayer. Are you that ashamed to show other people around you that you are a man and or woman of prayer? In such an environment, in a godless environment, does your loyalty tend to waver? Do you start acting how the rest of the world acts in order to fit in? No one wants to be a black sheep. No one wants to stand out because people who stand out get scrutinized. They get oppressed. That's why a lot of Christians, they conform to whatever the world does in order to not get picked on. But that's not what we are called to do. We are called to be loyal to God even in an environment where it's not accepted to to be a, a godly Christian. This principle of being double-minded and, and hypocritical is being, it has been taught to us again and again because of, it's such an important principle. Believers shouldn't have two different lifestyles and personalities. We're not meant to be Jekyll and Hyde Christians. Jekyll and Hyde is a, is a fictional character who is popular for having basically opposite split personalities. And on one end, he's a very prim and proper man. And on the other, when night comes, he becomes this very disgusting man, evil man. We can't be like that. We can't be on Sunday, we're Dr. Jekyll, we're prim and proper. We do everything that is expected of us as a Christian. We present ourselves well. We know what Christian words and phrases to say in order to fit in. Amen. To God be the glory. Praise the Lord. We know all of these Christian phrases and we utilize them in order to fit in. We look the part. We wear our Sunday best. We sound the part. We act the part of a well-to-do Christian. But just like with the famous Dr. Jekyll, the moment night comes, the moment the weekday comes, we become Mr. Hyde. It is fitting because it's the personality that we hide from our Sunday friends. We often show our coworkers and the people in our school sometimes our real personality. I'm not saying everybody here is a Jekyll and Hyde where we all have split personalities. I, I'd like to think that the majority of us aren't. That the majority of us are living the way we live on Sunday. But if there are anybody who has this Jekyll and Hyde split personality where at the moment Monday comes, you're just as ungodly as your coworkers. You throw away your loyalty to God in order to fit in with the others in your company. We have to choose this day whom we will serve. We need to stop being double-minded. Stop being a believer who only follows God when it is the acceptable, uh, accepted thing to do so. Be willing to follow God even when the rest of the crowd will criticize you for doing so. If you are such a believer who throws away his faithfulness to God the moment it's not popular anymore to do so, you're not a follower of God. 
You're just an actor playing the part of a follower. You know who it was? Someone like that in the Bible? Judas. Judas played the part perfectly. Because not a single one of the other 11 disciples could, uh, could tell that he was going to be, betray Jesus. None of them uh, uh, were, were able to figure that out. He played the part perfectly. But at the end, his colors came out and he betrayed Jesus. Don't be an actor. Be a follower of God in church and outside of church. We are blessed to be in a country where we have the privilege, <clears throat> the privilege of going to church every Sunday, every Wednesday. And if we want, we can go Thursday, Saturday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday. We can go to church anytime we want because of the freedoms that we have. But you read of the missionary letters. You, they can't do that in Russia. They have to go underground churches. They can't even sow in Russia. You can't do that in China. Brother Ross just came here a couple weeks ago. He can't do that in Israel. You can't do that in the Middle East because of the Taliban's presence. You'll be killed. We have the freedom to worship God freely here. And I often think about this. How many Christians who are in first world countries would still continue to be a Christian if they were placed in a country where it was completely unacceptable and unaccepted to do so? If you were placed in a situation like Russia or China, will you still be loyal to God? Will you still be faithful to God? Or will you throw away your faith in order to save your own skin? I know that's an extreme example, but there may come a time in Canada, our own country, where it becomes unacceptable to be a Christian by the sense of, you can, uh, by the biblical standards. In the future, there will be Christians still, but they'll have a completely different doctrine to what the Bible will say. Because if you stick to what the Bible says, you will not be allowed in this society in the future. But when that time comes, how many of us would stay true and loyal to God? Determined today to be on God's side, even when the rest of the world chooses otherwise. Now let's go to Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. So our first, first point was, <clears throat> we, people who follow God only when it's popular to do so. And we find our second point here at Job chapter 2. And just follow along as I read verses 1 to 8. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his, in, fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him, to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. One of the most popular accounts and stories in the Bible is that of the life of Job. Job had everything in the world. 
He was a wealthy man. And in a flash and in a moment, the, uh, everything, all the things that, he, he was, that was valuable to him was taken away. The three things that we commonly hold most dear in our lives is our family, our health, and our wealth. For the average citizen, our health, our wealth, and our family, those are the three things that we care about the most and we guard those things to death. And all those three things were taken away from Job in an instant. He lost all of his children. He was just stricken with, this, with boils from, from, the, from the bottom of his foot to the top of his head. And he lost all of his wealth. All the cattle he owned, all the livestock he owned, lost. He lost it all. And Satan thought that the only reason why Job worshipped the Lord was because he had all these things. But if, it, if I take these things away from that, from that man, I know for a fact that he will curse you. And he will curse you until he died. That's the type of Job, man Job was. Or that's what Satan thought. Satan struck him with, a, with, a, with boils. And yet, Job continued to be loyal and faithful to God. You see, Job wasn't what I call a bandwagon believer. He wasn't just serving God or loving God only when things were going well in his life. Going back to the realm of sports, as I've said, the reason why a lot of sports fans don't like bandwagoners is the fact that they only cheer for a team when they're doing well. No one likes those types of guys where they only cheer and support a team the moment they're, they're on top, but the moment they start being very miserable, they start criticizing the franchise, tearing down the players. No one likes those types of support. Job wasn't like this. He faced intense and sudden hardships, one after another, yet he refused to criticize and condemn God. But you know who we can't say the same about? His wife. In Job 2.9 it says, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Job. I'm assuming they were not in good terms anymore at this point. Job, are you still going to put up this facade that you still love God? Even when everything that we hold precious has been taken away from us, you're still refusing to just to curse God? From the way this, the woman was speaking, it's, it would seem that she already has, has given up on God. And she's just waiting for her husband to do so as well. But Job replied in verse 10, he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hands of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did, Job, did not Job sin with his lips. What an incredible character Job had. Everything was taken away from him, yet he did not sin with his lips. He did not curse God. Job's wife is the antithesis to Job. From what little is said about Job's wife, it seems that she was only willing to follow God as long as her personal situation, as long as her life was doing well. As long as the blessings were pouring in by the boatload, I'll keep continuing to follow you, Lord. But the moment that was taken away, the, the stream of blessings stopped and, and trials came into their lives, she gave up on God. She gave up on God. Mind you, Job's reaction to this situation was the extraordinary thing. I believe that most of us would not re react anywhere close to how Job reacted. Job's response was amazing. Imagine if 
all your close family members died. Imagine you also then filed for bankruptcy and you were diagnosed with a mysterious, incurable disease. How do you think you would respond? I don't think a lot of us would respond the way Job responded. I think we would have fallen into the same category as Job's wife. But even though that's an extreme example, the principle still remains. If your life starts going downhill or seemingly downhill and everything seems to be going wrong in your life, nothing you do, nothing that you touch seems to go well, will you still choose to be faithful to God? Or or will you jump ship? When your family seems to be breaking apart, siblings are having quarrels with one another, maybe you're not having a great relationship with your spouse, when when the family's breaking at the seams, will you still be loyal to him? When you don't get the promotion you wanted, when you get laid off from your job, will you still continue to trust God? When you spend most of your days with body pains, with headaches, with all sorts of illnesses on a consistent basis, will you still be on God's side or will you curse Him? I think we should imitate Job's example in this case. To be a, to be a follower of God, even when things, when we are going through hard and difficult trials. And let's finish off with this last point. 2 Timothy 4.10. Let's turn there. It says, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. We don't know anything or really not much about Demas, about how he came into ministry or what his personality was even like. All we do know is that he was one part, he was once part of Paul's band of, of missionaries, you could say, and he eventually left the ministry, because his true affection, his true love was, uh, was the world. He loved the world more than he, he loved his, the, the ministry, you know, loved God. Now, this next part is, for me, just conjecture. But maybe the reason why Demas joined the ministry in the first place was because he was fascinated with the gospel that Jesus' disciples were preaching. When something new pops up, something that trends, again, your, 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 your interest is piqued. You, you, you want to kind of be a, a part of it and see what it's all about. And maybe Demas, he saw the disciples preaching all around the country and he was interested and his, his curiosity was piqued and he joined the ministry because of that. He wanted to see what the Christian movement was about. But eventually, maybe that initial excitement to be part of that Christian movement died off. And he began to be reminded of all the greater and more fun things that the world had to offer. These disciples... They're moving from city to city. They barely take a break. Sometimes their stones are being thrown at them. Insults are being thrown left and right at these disciples. This is not as fun as I thought. You know what? I'm just going to go back to Thessalonica and live my life the way I wanted to live it. I have better things to do in Thessalonica. And this is my third and final point. Are Christians who only follow God when they have nothing else better to do and they're just trying to pass the time. I have a girlfriend, and if my girlfriend told me, Ivan, the only reason I hang out with you is I have nothing better to do. 
I have no better way to spend my time, so just, I, I, I just choose to spend time with you. I would be very sad. I'm like, am I just an afterthought in your life then? You're spending your spare time with me, but you're, you're, you're probably thinking of something better to do. I don't want to feel like an afterthought in that, in that scenario. But you know what? Sometimes believers do the same thing towards God. We like to give our spares. We don't like to give our best. We like to give our spares. If we have nothing else more exciting to do in our schedule, then we'll serve God and worship Him. But if there are more fun things to do, if there are vacations that we need to go to, uh, plans with our friends, hangouts with our friends that we need to do, God can wait. These things go first. We prioritize these things. I had a coworker. I used to, before when I was still in college. I used to work at a Korean supermarket in Guilford called Hanam Supermarket. <clears throat> and you know, I would witness to my, my coworkers often. And there was one coworker I remember, and I was telling him my, about my faith. And he expressed that he still believes in God. But he is not a big fan of, at least in his his words said, he was not a fan of the Korean church. Being because to them, in his perspective, a lot of them just went because they thought of church as a social club, a place where we can just talk and catch up with our friends. They had nothing else better to do on a Sunday, so they just went to church because it was like a social club. And even to an unsaved person like him, he realized, isn't this church, aren't we supposed to be talking about God, not about each other? And so he became disillusioned with Christianity and he stopped going to church. And hopefully he's, someone witnesses to him in the future again. But that's something similar. We, are, we're, we treat God like he's the afterthought of the church. But he should be at the forefront of our worship. He should be the priority of our worship, of our every single day. Instead of putting God at last place in our schedule, God has to be a part of all of the things in our schedule. He's not to be at the top. He's actually supposed to be a part of everything in our schedule. From the moment we meet up with our friends, the moment we go to work, the moment we do this or that, God needs to be a part of our schedule. It should always be our priority. The moment life gets busy and packed with things that, needed, that needs to get done, will your, will your loyalty and faithfulness to God remain? Or will it be tossed out the window? God ought to be our priority. And as I close, and as I call Pastor Tim to close us in prayer, just as Joshua challenged the Israelites, all of us have a choice to make today. You can be a bandwagon believer and only follow when it's popular and acceptable to do so. Only when your life is going well and only when you have the time to spare. Or you can choose to be a true, loyal, and faithful follower of God. That despite what circumstances you may find yourself in, you have purpose in your heart to choose and prioritize God every day. We just had a wedding, uh, uh, Danielle and Josh. And you know, what a famous thing that uh, newlyweds say is, I, chose, I, I will choose you every single day. And it's a very sweet thing to say. But are we choosing God every day? Are we making that choice every single day? What type of believer and follower will you be? God requires us to be faithful to him. But are you willing to be the type of Christian who will be ever loyal and ever faithful to God? Let's close our eyes and then I'll have Pastor Tim close us in a little bit. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word. Oh,